Chapter Nineteen of Sylvie and Bruno Concluded. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine Eastman. Sylvie and Bruno Concluded by Lewis Carroll. Chapter Nineteen: A Fairy Duet. The year what an eventful year it had been for me, was drawing to a close, and the brief wintry day hardly gave light enough to recognize the old familiar objects, bound up with so many happy memories, as the train glided round the last bend into the station, and the hoarse cry of, Elveston, Elveston, resounded along the platform. It was sad to return to the place, and to feel that I should never again see the glad smile of welcome that had awaited me here so few months ago. And yet, if I were to find him here, I muttered, as in solitary state I followed the porter, who was wheeling my luggage on a barrow, and if he were to strike a sudden hand in mine and ask a thousand things of home, I should not, no, I should not feel it to be strange. Having given directions to have my luggage taken to my old lodgings, I strolled off alone, to pay a visit, before settling down in my own quarters, to my dear old friends, for such I indeed felt them to be, though it was barely half a year since first we met, the Earl and his widowed daughter. The shortest way, as I well remembered, was to cross through the churchyard. I pushed open the little wicket gate, and slowly took my way among the solemn memorials of the quiet dead thinking of the many who had, during the past year, disappeared from the place, and had gone to join the majority. A very few steps brought me in sight of the object of my search. Lady Muriel, dressed in the deepest mourning, her face hidden by a long crepe veil, was kneeling before a little marble cross, round which she was fastening a wreath of flowers. The cross stood on a piece of level turf, unbroken by any mound, and I knew that it was simply a memorial cross for one whose dust reposed elsewhere, even before reading the simple inscription. In loving memory of Arthur Forrester, M.D., whose mortal remains lie buried by the sea, whose spirit has returned to God who gave it. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. She threw back her veil on seeing me approach, and came forwards to meet me with a quiet smile, and far more self-possessed than I could have expected. "'It is quite like old times seeing you here again,' she said in tones of genuine pleasure. "'Have you been to see my father?' "'No,' I said. "'I was on my way there, and came through here as the shortest way. I hope he is well, and you also.' "'Thanks. We are both quite well. And you?' Are you any better yet? Not much better, I fear, but no worse, I am thankful to say. Let us sit here a while and have a quiet chat, she said. The calmness, almost indifference, of her manner quite took me by surprise. I little guessed what a fierce restraint she was putting upon herself. One can be so quiet here, she resumed. I come here every, every day. It is very peaceful, I said. You got my letter? Yes, but I delayed writing. It is so hard to say on paper. I know. It was kind of you. You were with us when we saw the last of... 
she paused a moment and went on more hurriedly i went down to the harbour several times but no one knows which of those vast graves it is however they showed me the house he died in that was some comfort i stood in the very room where where she struggled in vain to go on the floodgates had given way at last and the outburst of grief was the most terrible i had ever witnessed totally regardless of my presence she flung herself down on the turf burying her face in the grass and with her hands clasped round the little marble cross oh my darling my darling she sobbed and god meant your life to be so beautiful i was startled to hear thus repeated by lady muriel the very words of the darling child whom i had seen weeping so bitterly over the dead hair had some mysterious influence passed from that sweet fairy spirit ere she went back to fairyland into the human spirit that loved her so dearly the idea seems too wild for belief and yet are there not more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy god meant it to be beautiful i whispered and surely it was beautiful god's purpose never fails i dared say no more but rose and left her at the entrance gate to the earl's house i waited leaning on the gate and watching the sunset revolving many memories some happy some sorrowful until lady muriel joined me she was quite calm again now do come in she said my father will be so pleased to see you the old man rose from his chair with a smile to welcome me but his self-command was far less than his daughter's and the tears coursed down his face as he grasped both my hands in his and pressed them warmly my heart was too full to speak and we all sat silent for a minute or two then lady muriel rang the bell for tea you do take five o'clock tea i know she said to me with the sweet playfulness of manner i remembered so well even though you can't work your wicked will on the law of gravity and make the teacups descend into infinite space a little faster than the tea this remark gave the tone to our conversation by a tacit mutual consent we avoided during this our first meeting after her great sorrow the painful topics that filled our thoughts and talked like light-hearted children who had never known a care did you ever ask yourself the question lady muriel began apropos of nothing what is the chief advantage of being a man instead of a dog no indeed i said but i think there are advantages on the dog side of the question as well no doubt she replied with that pretty mock gravity that became her so well but on man's side the chief advantage seems to me to consist in having pockets it was borne in upon me upon us i should say for my father and i were returning from a walk only yesterday we met a dog carrying home a bone what it wanted it for i've no idea certainly there was no meat on it a strange sensation came over me that i had heard all this or something exactly like it before and i almost expected her next words to be perhaps he meant to make a cloak for the winter however what she really said was and my father tried to account for it by some wretched joke about pro bono publico well the dog laid down the bone not in disgust with a pun which would have shown it to be a dog of taste but simply to rest its jaws poor thing i did pity it so 
won't you join my charitable association for supplying dogs with pockets how would you like to have to carry your walking stick in your mouth ignoring the difficult question as to the raison d'etre of a walking stick supposing one had no hands i mentioned a curious instance i had once witnessed of reasoning by a dog a gentleman with a lady and child and a large dog were down at the end of the pier on which i was walking to amuse his child i suppose the gentleman put down on the ground his umbrella and the lady's parasol and then led the way to the other end of the pier from which he sent the dog back for the deserted articles i was watching with some curiosity the dog came racing back to where i stood but found an unexpected difficulty in picking up the things it had come for with the umbrella in its mouth its jaws were so far apart that it could get no firm grip on the parasol after two or three failures it paused and it considered the matter then it put down the umbrella and began with the parasol of course that didn't open its jaws nearly so wide and it was able to get a good hold of the umbrella and galloped off in triumph one couldn't doubt that it had gone through a real train of logical thought i entirely agree with you said lady muriel but don't orthodox writers condemn that view as putting man on the level of the lower animals don't they draw a sharp boundary line between reason and instinct that certainly was the orthodox view a generation ago said the earl the truth of religion seemed ready to stand or fall with the assertion that man was the only reasoning animal but that is at an end now man can still claim certain monopolies for instance such a use of language as enables us to utilize the work of many by division of labor but the belief that we have a monopoly of reason has long been swept away yet no catastrophe has followed as some old poet says god is where he was most religious believers would now agree with bishop butler said i and not reject a line of argument even if it led straight to the conclusion that animals have some kind of soul which survives their bodily death i would like to know that to be true lady muriel exclaimed if only for the sake of the poor horses sometimes i've thought that if anything could make me cease to believe in a god of perfect justice it would be the sufferings of horses without guilt to deserve it and without any compensation it is only part of the great riddle said the earl why innocent beings ever suffer it is a great strain on faith but not a breaking strain i think the sufferings of horses i said are chiefly caused by man's cruelty so that is merely one of the many instances of sin causing suffering to others than the sinner himself but don't you find a greater difficulty in suffering inflicted by animals upon each other for instance a cat playing with a mouse assuming it to have no moral responsibility isn't that a greater mystery than a man overdriving a horse i think it is said lady muriel looking a mute appeal to her father what right have we to make that assumption said the earl many of our religious difficulties are merely deductions from unwarranted assumptions the wisest answer to most of them is i think behold we know not anything you mentioned division of labor just now i said surely it is carried to a wonderful perfection in a hive of bees so wonderful 
so entirely superhuman said the earl and so entirely inconsistent with the intelligence they show in other ways that i feel no doubt at all that it is pure instinct and not as some hold a very high order of reason look at the utter stupidity of a bee trying to find its way out of an open window it doesn't try in any reasonable sense of the word it simply bangs itself about we should call a puppy imbecile that behaved so and yet we are asked to believe that its intellectual level is above sir isaac newton then you hold that pure instinct contains no reason at all on the contrary said the earl i hold that the work of a beehive involves reason of the highest order but none of it is done by the bee god has reasoned it all out and has put into the mind of the bee the conclusions only of the reasoning process but how do their minds come to work together i asked what right have we to assume that they have minds special pleading special pleading lady muriel cried in a most unfilial tone of triumph why you yourself said just now the mind of the bee but i did not say minds my child the earl gently replied it has occurred to me as the most probable solution of the bee mystery that a swarm of bees have only one mind among them we often see one mind animating a most complex collection of limbs and organs when joined together how do we know that any material connection is necessary may not mere neighborhood be enough if so a swarm of bees is simply a single animal whose many limbs are not quite close together it is a bewildering thought i said and needs a night's rest to grasp it properly reason and instinct both tell me i ought to go home so good night i'll set you part of the way said lady muriel i've had no walk to-day it will do me good and i have more to say to you shall we go through the wood it will be pleasanter than over the common even though it is getting a little dark we turned aside into the shade of interlacing boughs which formed an architecture of almost perfect symmetry grouped into lovely groined arches or running out far as the eye could follow into endless aisles and chancels and naves like some ghostly cathedral fashioned out of the dream of a moonstruck poet always in this wood she began after a pause silence seemed natural in this dim solitude i begin thinking of fairies may i ask you a question she added hesitatingly do you believe in fairies the momentary impulse was so strong to tell her of my experiences in this very wood that i had to make a real effort to keep back the words that rushed to my lips if you mean by believe believe in their possible existence i say yes for their actual existence of course one would need evidence you were saying the other day she went on that you would accept anything on good evidence that was not a priori impossible and i think you named ghosts as an instance of a provable phenomenon would fairies be another instance yes i think so and again it was hard to check the wish to say more but i was not yet sure of a sympathetic listener and have you any theory as to what sort of place they would occupy in creation do tell me what you think about them 
would they for instance supposing such beings to exist would they have any moral responsibility i mean and the light bantering tone suddenly changed to one of deep seriousness would they be capable of sin they can reason on a lower level perhaps than men and women never rising i think above the faculties of a child and they have a moral sense most surely such a being without free will would be an absurdity so i am driven to the conclusion that they are capable of sin you believe in them she cried delightedly with a sudden motion as if about to clap her hands now tell me have you any reason for it and still i strove to keep back the revelation i felt sure was coming i believe that there is life everywhere not material only not merely what is palpable to our senses but immaterial and invisible as well we believe in our own immaterial essence call it soul or spirit or what you will why should not other similar essences exist around us not linked on to a visible and material body did not god make this swarm of happy insects to dance in this sunbeam for one hour of bliss for no other object that we can imagine than to swell the sum of conscious happiness and where shall we dare to draw the line and say he has made all these and no more yes yes she assented watching me with sparkling eyes but these are only reasons for not denying you have more reasons than this have you not well yes i said feeling i might safely tell all now and i could not find a fitter time or place to say it i have seen them and in this very wood lady muriel asked no more questions silently she paced at my side with head bowed down and hands clasped tightly together only as my tale went on she drew a little short quick breath now and then like a child panting with delight and i told her what i had never yet breathed to any other listener of my double life and more than that for mine might have been but a noonday dream of the double life of those two dear children and when i told her of bruno's wild gambols she laughed merrily and when i spoke of sylvie's sweetness and her utter unselfishness and trustful love she drew a deep breath like one who hears at last some precious tidings for which the heart has ached for a long while and the happy tears chased one another down her cheeks i have often longed to meet an angel she whispered so low that i could hardly catch the words i'm so glad i've seen sylvie my heart went out to the child the first moment that i saw her listen she broke off suddenly that's sylvie singing i'm sure of it don't you know her voice i have heard bruno sing more than once i said but i never heard sylvie i have only heard her once said lady muriel it was that day when you brought us those mysterious flowers the children had run out into the garden and i saw eric coming in that way and went to the window to meet him and sylvie was singing under the trees a song i had never heard before the words were something like i think it is love i feel it is love her voice sounded far away like a dream but it was beautiful beyond all words as sweet as an infant's first smile or the first gleam of the white cliffs when one is coming home after weary years 
a voice that seemed to fill one's whole being with peace and heavenly thoughts. Listen! she cried, breaking off again in her excitement. That is her voice, and that's the very song! I could distinguish no words, but there was a dreamy sense of music in the air that seemed to grow ever louder and louder, as if coming nearer to us. We stood quite silent, and in another minute the two children appeared, coming straight towards us through an arched opening among the trees. Each had an arm round the other, and the setting sun shed a golden halo round their heads, like what one sees in pictures of saints. They were looking in our direction, but evidently did not see us, and I soon made out that Lady Muriel had, for once, passed into a condition familiar to me, that we were both of us eerie, and though we could see the children so plainly, we were quite invisible to them. The song ceased just as they came into sight, but to my delight Bruno instantly said, Let's sing it all again, Sylvie. It did sound so pretty. And Sylvie replied, Very well. It's you to begin, you know. So Bruno began in the sweet childish treble I knew so well. Say, what is the spell when her fledglings are cheeping that lures the bird home to her nest? Or wakes the tired mother whose infant is weeping to cuddle and croon it to rest? What's the magic that charms the glad baby in her arms till it goes with the voice of the dove? And now ensued quite the strangest of all the strange experiences that marked the wonderful year whose history I am writing, the experience of first hearing Sylvie's voice in song. Her part was a very short one, only a few words, and she sang it timidly and very low indeed, scarcely audibly. But the sweetness of her voice was simply indescribable. I have never heard any earthly music like it. "'Tis a secret and so let us whisper it low, and the name of the secret is love." On me the first effect of her voice was a sudden sharp pang that seemed to pierce through one's very heart. I had felt such a pang only once before in my life, and it had been from seeing what at the moment realized one's idea of perfect beauty. It was in a London exhibition, where, in making my way through a crowd, I suddenly met, face to face, a child of quite unearthly beauty. Then came a rush of burning tears to the eyes, as though one could weep one's soul away for pure delight. And lastly there fell on me a sense of awe that was almost terror, some such feeling as Moses must have had when he heard the words, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. The figures of the children became vague and shadowy, like glimmering meteors, while their voices rang together in exquisite harmony as they sang, For I think it is love, for I feel it is love, for I'm sure it is nothing but love. By this time I could see them clearly once more. Bruno again sang by himself. 
say whence is the voice that when anger is burning bids the whirl of thy tempest to cease that stirs the vexed soul with an aching a yearning for the brotherly hand grip of peace whence the music that fills all our being that thrills around us beneath and above sylvie sang more courageously this time the words seemed to carry her away out of herself tis a secret none knows how it comes how it goes but the name of the secret is love and clear and strong the chorus rang out for i think it is love for i feel it is love for i'm sure it is nothing but love once more we heard bruno's delicate little voice alone say whose is the skill that paints valley and hill like a picture so fair to the sight that flecks the green meadow with sunshine and shadow till the little lambs leap with delight and again uprose that silvery voice whose angelic sweetness i could hardly bear tis a secret untold to hearts cruel and cold though tis sung by the angels above in notes that ring clear for the ears that can hear and the name of the secret is and then bruno joined in again with for i think it is love for i feel it is love for i'm sure it is nothing but love. that are pretty the little fellow exclaimed as the children passed us so closely that we drew back a little to make room for them and it seemed we only had to reach out a hand to touch them but this we did not attempt no use to try and stop them i said as they passed away into the shadows why they could not even see us no use at all lady muriel echoed with a sigh one would like to meet them again in living form but i feel somehow that can never be they have passed out of our lives she sighed again and no more was said till we came out into the main road at a point near my lodgings well i will leave you here she said i want to get back before dark and i have a cottage friend to visit first good night dear friend let us see you soon and often she added with an affectionate warmth that went to my very heart for those are few we hold as dear good night i answered tennyson said that of a worthier friend than me tennyson didn't know what he was talking about 
she saucily rejoined, with a touch of her old childish gaiety, and we parted. End of chapter 19